0: You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I'd ask you to take your Bibles to the passage that uh, Dave just read for us, and we're going to continue our journey through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2.10 is a verse that I think a lot of us really enjoy. Because it says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. And I think when most of us hear that verse, we think of it as speaking to me. We tend to interpret it as... A reference to me. We think about it speaking to me as an individual. And that's not wrong. That's not wrong to think that way because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God beforehand ordained that we individually should walk in them. But here's the thing, the most immediate implication of that passage of Scripture is not we, uh, not me, but we. It really is a passage of scripture that was written primarily to a church, not to a group of individuals, but to a church. So, in a very real sense, God was saying to the Ephesian church, folks, together, you are God's workmanship. Collectively, God has saved you in order to do good works through you. So, we are. Harvest Niagara is God's workmanship. We are his project. We are his creation. We are his undertaking. And it is his intention to do things through us that wouldn't happen were we not together as a body of Christ. So God has very specifically created us for very specific purposes that no other church can accomplish. And it's important that we understand that. It's important that, God, that we understand that God has created us, that he has shaped us, that he has molded us, and that he is working in us, that we will accomplish the things that he has called us to do together. And it's because of that that Paul next turns to the issue of unity. Unity. Because unity is absolutely critical if the church is going to be successful in the mission that God has given us. Paul begins to speak about unity in the passage that Dave read for us. And so I want us to take a second at the beginning of this message and pray that God would open our hearts. Because unity is not something that comes easily. And the problem is, and it's always this way, the problem is the other guy, right? No, the problem's me. The problem's me. And so I'm going to say things this morning from God's word that is going to require us to have the right heart attitude, And so I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and let's ask God to do in our hearts what's necessary that we might be a church that is truly unified, that God can use for his purposes in Niagara. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that right now you want to speak to us. Lord, it's my desire, my prayer that you speak through me, and that, Lord, into our hearts you would say those things, you would speak those words that we need to hear. Some of them will be hard to hear, some of them will challenge us, some of them won't necessarily feel good. But I pray, God, that you would do what's necessary in our hearts right now so that we would humble ourselves before you and before your word and that you would accomplish in us individually what you need to do so that you might accomplish through us collectively what it is that you want to do. And so we just commit ourselves to you to that end now. And pray that your blessing would be upon this time, both as we're in the word and then as we gather together around the table, around this communion service, Lord. Knit our hearts together in love. Give us a heart of just grace from one another that we might be a unified, godly, effective congregation of people raised up to accomplish your purposes in this part of the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So it's important to remember, again, that the church of Ephesus was primarily a Gentile church, but it was also there was also Jews in it, two groups, Jews and Gentiles, who had traditionally hated each other, <clears throat> traditionally had tremendous animosity and hostility towards one another. Yet in spite of the, like the vast differences that existed culturally, uh, traditionally, from past religions, Uh, Social mores, all that kind of stuff, despite all of the differences that had existed between these Gentiles and these Jews, God had done a miracle. He had knit together in the church of Ephesus two groups of people that had previously been at each other's throats. Jews would refuse to walk into the home of a gentile on principle. It was their it was their belief that they would defile themselves by walking into the home of a gentile. Some some Jews were so committed not to be defiled by these Gentile dogs that when they saw them coming, they would close their eyes so as not to be defiled by the sight of them. That is how deeply this animosity went. And yet God killed the hostility. That's what Paul says in this passage of Scripture. He killed the hostility. In fact, this word hostility is used twice in this passage of Scripture. It was so so evident in the first century culture that these two groups hated each other. The church was, in fact, a miracle. It was a living miracle that God had knit these two groups together. And their unity was the key to their success, And their unity, as I said earlier on, is the key to our success. Now, it's not the only key. The gospel has to be preached. Church discipline has to be enacted. Orthodoxy has to be protected. There's a lot of keys. But first and foremost, at the bottom, at the foundation of every church, there must be unity because without unity, we simply cannot be successful. Unity is critical to our success Psalm 133 tells us this. Where does the blessing of God rest? The blessing of God rests in that place where brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Unity is critical. And the antithesis of that is true. If we don't have unity, if we are a deeply conflicted, relationally broken church, we cannot be successful. It is as simple as that. A church that is going to do what God has called her to do must be a church that is unified and therefore it must be made up of people who war for unity, who fight for unity, who do everything necessary to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, Nathaniel's gonna be preaching on that passage in a couple of weeks. And it was Paul's heart for the Ephesian church, chapter four, verse three. He says, be diligent, be, be passionate, do everything you can to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's the challenge that we have. Unity's fragile, we know that. It's a, it's a tenuous thing. It's easily lost. And when we lose it, we lose our effectiveness. God can't use us. We lose our potential. And so what's the threat? What causes disunity? Well, there's pride and stubbornness and my desire to get my own way and an unforgiving, critical spirit, a root of bitterness, a rebellious spirit, outbursts of anger, apathy, and so many other sins that we could name that cause relational brokenness in the church. And so you and I We can do one of two things. We can foster unity, we can be a source of unity, we can be a champion of unity, we can fight for unity, or we can live with conflict and disunity. And if we live, if we allow disunity to be the influence or the wake that we leave in our lives, it's a scary thing. The Corinthian church was a a fractured church It was not an effective church. It's interesting that Paul didn't write, you know, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to those guys because they they weren't there yet. For the most part, I talked to them about disunity and conflict and and, and factionalism and fractiousness. And then he says this in chapter 3. He says, don't you know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Listen. If anyone destroys the church of God, God will destroy him. That's scary stuff. But that's how Paul spoke to a church that was broken, where pride and selfishness and party spirit and and fractious attitudes and selfishness and stubbornness and all kinds of sin were just ripping that church apart. God says, you do that to God's church, God will destroy you. That's how serious God takes this issue of unity. And so how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? How do we maintain unity in the church so that we maintain our effectiveness? Four things, real quick. First, we've got to choose humility. Look at verse 11, and I'll read the passage again with you. Therefore, remember, and notice this, that he says, remember twice, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called or the so called circumcision, which is made in the in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. So he tells them to remember, think back, recall, recollect who you were before Jesus saved you. And who were they? Well, Paul calls them the uncircumcision. They were the Gentiles, they were not part of Israel. And they were called the the uncircumcision by the so called circumcision. We'll talk about that in a second. And what was the consequence of them being outside of Israel? Well, they were separated from Christ, alienated from the family of God, strangers to the promises of God made in his covenants. They were without God and as a consequence without hope in this world. This is who the Ephesians were. And Paul is saying, remember who you were. Think back. Remember where God found you, where you were when God saved you. You were lost, hopeless, helpless, godless, cut off from God's promises through the redemptive plan that he had through Israel. And folks, that's exactly who we were, right? Before Jesus saved us, that's where we were. And it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to let that sort of just drift away and forget from whence we have come. But what Paul is doing here for these guys and these gals is saying, listen, never forget where you were when God found you. Never forget where you came from. Have you ever seen those like hockey players or these people who are very, very famous and they're asking, you know, how do you keep grounded? How do you stay so humble to the ones who are? And oftentimes I'll say this, I never forget where I came from. I never forget where I came from. And folks, if we're going to be a unified church, we've got to remember where we came from. Where, where were we when God found us? We were lost. We were helpless. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the covenant, God's covenant people. We were strangers to all of the hope that God had for us in Christ. We were without hope and without God in this world. And yet, because of Jesus, verse 13, because of his blood, because of what he has done, he has redeemed us and brought us into his family. When we were hopeless, when we were godless, Jesus intervened. And by his blood made us part of God's family. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, we are the true circumcision. Notice how he calls them in Ephesians, the so-called circumcision. The Jews, they are the so-called circumcision. Philippians chapter 3, he says, look, we're we're the circumcision. Jew and Gentile together in this new thing, we are the people of God. So we're rescued, saved members of the family of God. Why? Because of his grace, because of his love. So why does Paul sort of say remember? What's his point here? I think the answer is this. When we remember from whence we have come, it produces humility, doesn't it? When you think back to who you were before the Lord saved you, it is an antidote to our pride. It takes away that pride that is so responsible for so much conflict and so much disunity in the church. Remembering puts us in our place. Remembering gives us context. It humbles us. In a simple phrase, remembering who we were kills our pride. And Pride is the root behind all of the conflict, all of the disunity, all of the unresolved conflict and relational problems in our church. And we're all proud people. I know you're proud, people. I'll do, a, I'll do a test right now. If somebody shows you a picture and you know that you're in that photograph, where do you look first? Man, we're just so proud. We look to ourselves. And that is just, our, that's just who we are. Pride is part of who we are. Were these kind of, you know, like, like me. I say to people, look, I've talked enough about me. Why don't you talk about me for a while? <laughs> and I honestly believe, like, I honestly believe that I'm not bossy. I just know that my ideas are better than yours. You see, I'm, I'm a proud man. I was born in it. I'm steeped in it. It's part of my nature. And what Paul is saying to these folks is, remember, think back you are who you are by the grace of God. You didn't get into the church by yourself. It was God's grace. You do now have hope. Why? Because of him. Why can you rest in the promises of God, the covenantal promises of God? Because his grace. Like everything that I have is because of grace. I have nothing to boast in. It's all of Grace. And that grace should humble us. Whenever you're in a situation where you're tempted to be proud and push your ideas and behave in a way that is going to cause conflict in the church, just stop and think, where did I come from? And why am I here? And recognize that it is God's grace. It will humble us. Proud people demand their own ways. They sulk if they don't get it. They rebel against authority. They lash out. They foster factions in the church, and it is so destructive, not only simply because it destroys the unity and the joy that we have in a church, but it destroys our effectiveness. We are his workmanship. We are created by the grace of God in Christ for good works in Niagara that God prepared for us beforehand that we would accomplish for his glory. And there's something awesome about that. Being part of a unique body of believers, saved and brought together by the power of the Holy Spirit to do something in our generation that no other church, no other congregation can accomplish. Are we going to let our pride, our anger, our disunity stop that? That would be tragic. That would be wrong. So the first key is humility. The second key is this. We've got to be peacemakers rather than peacekeepers. Peacekeepers. Look at verse 14 with me. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. And I think all of us would stop and say, yes, that's absolutely true. God through Christ has made peace with me. And now I am at peace with God through Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. God has radically transformed me. Therefore, having been justified by faith, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that theologically, we rest in it, but folks, that's only one half of it. That's only part of it. Look at the rest of the verse. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The second half of this verse says that God has made us one by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. We have peace with God, but as Christians, we have peace with one another. This is something that is possible. This is not a pipe dream, this is not something that is unattainable for us, that is beyond our capacity because God has saved us, because we are at peace with him through Christ, because we are new creatures in Christ by grace, not only can we relate to God beautifully, we can relate to one another beautifully. And that is what God expects of us, to take the peace that he has given to us and to extend it and to live in that ethos of peace. Paul says that God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Let me explain what he's referring to here. In the temple, there were different courts. A series of courts. Each court was smaller and higher than the one before. And in the very center of it, it, at the highest place on the mountain, Mount Zion, was the temple, the temple court. The most The largest one and the the lowest one was the court of the Gentiles. That's where Gentiles were invited to come or should have been invited to come to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's why Jesus got so upset on two occasions because they had turned that area that was supposed to be for the nations to come and worship God, the God of Israel. They turned it into a market for a bunch of thieving, greedy people. And Jesus was so upset with them. And then there was a wall around that that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. It was about a five-foot-high wall. It was a latticed wall. You could see through it, but if you're a Gentile, you could not pass it. Beyond that, there was the court of the Israelites, the court of the men, and then beyond that, the court of the priests, and then beyond that was the holy place where the temple itself stood. Josephus, the the first-century historian, tells us a little bit about this dividing wall that was between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. There was ways that you could get through, obviously. There was gates that you could get through, but on each gate, there was a sign in stone that said, if you're a Gentile and you cross this threshold, you will be responsible for your own death. We Actually, they found, um, they found a, uh, one of those signs. It's in, the, it's in a museum in Israel. You can read it. If you, well, if you could read it, you could read it. But there it is. And so that's what Paul is talking about. This, this wall that separated the, Jew, the, the Gentiles from the other courts. And what Paul is saying, using that as an, as an analogy, is that the barrier that separated Gentiles from God and Gentiles from Jews has been abolished. In other words, when Jesus died, he made peace with men, but he also made peace between men. He broke down that hostility, broke down that barrier that separated people. And he created in himself, in the church, an environment where people live in peace with God, and because the barrier of hostility is torn down, we live at peace with one another by his grace. That's what God expects of us. So how can we call ourselves Christians who have peace with God and yet not live at peace with one another? Well, I think there are two answers. There may be more answers, but I think there's two. One, we're hypocrites. We gladly receive the grace of God and choose not to give it to other people. We gladly accept his forgiveness and his mercy and his love and simply choose not to be a conduit of it to others. And that is just hypocrisy. It's an ugly thing. That's that's why Jesus says in Matthew, if you don't forgive your brother, don't think God's going to forgive you. Because, Because one of the impacts of being forgiven by God Being a new creature in Christ, being at peace with God, is the ability to forgive our brother or our sister and be at peace with them, to show them forgiveness. And and if we can't do that, you know what we are? We are hypocrites. Honestly, it's better that we just close the door, finish off the books, say we're done disperse to other, well, probably don't go to other churches because you're just going to mess that one up too. It, it's, it's just better that we shut her down because we'll go through the motions and we'll preach the gospel and by our testimony as a body, we will deny everything we're preaching. You see, the barrier that, that, the barrier, the dividing wall that created hostility has been taken away. Because when God saved us, he gave us the capacity to love us, to love each other. And we need to do that. We've got to choose to reject the hypocrisy that says, I can receive God's forgiveness, but I'm not giving it. I can receive God's grace, but I'm not sharing it. But secondly, there's another reason. And I think this is, the, this is also very important. And we do this oftentimes without thinking about the implications. We substitute peacekeeping for peacemaking. And there's a world of difference. Canadians are great peacekeepers, especially back in the 80s and the 90s and 70s. You know, we would send soldiers out all over the world with the blue helmets on, and we were known as peacekeepers. And that was a good thing. When you got in between two kind of warring factions, you kept them apart, that's a good thing. In warring places around the world, but it's not a good thing in the church. We need no blue helmets in the church. We do not need peacekeepers in the church. What we need is peacemakers, and there's a world of difference. A peacekeeper avoids conflict, a peacekeeper sweeps it under the rug. He lives with estrangement, holds grudges, doesn't deal with issues. A peacekeeper is a pretender. She is a phony. She says, I'm fine. Oh, yeah, everything's good. We're great. And you're lying through your teeth, but you're keeping the peace. You don't want to broach the nasty subject. You don't want to talk about how you were hurt. Peacekeeping. You're lying. I'm not hurting. No, I'm not angry. All the while, the resentment builds And that kind of attitude, that kind of behavior, peacekeeping destroys churches. A peacemaker, on the other hand, is a person who is not afraid of the conflict. And in the church, there is good conflict, necessary conflict, as there is in every marriage. Whenever I have to tell Cindy she's wrong about something, we have conflict. But that's a good thing because then she learns that she's wrong and, you know, changes. I can say these things up here. It'll be a long drive home. but (laughs) Every, every Every relationship, whether it's in this church, in a marriage, father, child, son, daughter, whatever, without conflict, if you don't have it, one person is dominated and one person is exploited. One person is dominating, one person is exploiting. Conflict's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a necessary thing. Unresolved conflict is a terrible thing. So a peacemaker is a person who's not afraid of the conflict. peacemaker is someone who's able to say and we've got to learn to say this. I learned this after about you know, being married for about two days. I'm, so, I, "I'm sorry. I was wrong. Would you please forgive me?" And right, right at, very early on in our marriage, it wasn't just "I'm sorry." it was, "I'm sorry. I was wrong. Would you please forgive me?" We taught that to our kids. But that's what peacemakers sound like. I was wrong. I am sorry. Would you please forgive me for being wrong? I won't do it again. Or I'll try not to do it again. Peacemaker goes to someone who has hurt or offended them, even though the other person doesn't, isn't aware of it. If that little root of bitterness is growing and you're getting frustrated and upset, you go to that person and you speak to them about how they wounded you or hurt you and you make peace. You make it Right. A peacemaker is what Jesus was. He was proactive. He came and he made peace, right? He made peace with us. A peacemaker seeks reconciliation. They fight for unity. They pursue unity. A peacemaker pursues unity. A peacekeeper pretends unity. And folks, there's a world of difference And on the outside, maybe you can't see it, but the Holy Spirit sure does. James 3.18 says this. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So let me give you my sort of the Paul Little International version of that. A harvest of righteousness at Harvest Niagara will be sown in peace, the gospel of peace, by those who make peace. The inclination is to sweep it under the rug, right? I don't want the conflict. I'm just going to just wait until it goes away. I'm sure I'll feel better in 10 years. And it doesn't. It doesn't. So who are you going to be? Are you going to be a peace keeper or a peacemaker? Are there people in your life, your husband, your parents, your kids, someone in this church, someone in your small group, that you're not at peace with? And you can do one of two things. You can pretend to be at peace, or you can actually make peace. Is there someone that you need to go and seek forgiveness from or share a hurt with? Are you harboring bitterness? Is there unforgiveness in your heart to anyone? We have a choice at Harvest Niagara to make peace and to know that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I don't think we're going to have much harvest of righteousness, people coming to faith, God growing us up in himself, developing us more fully into the image of Christ, unless we commit to being peacemakers. Thirdly, keep the main thing the main thing. Look at verse 15. So how did he do this? How did Jesus abolish the hostility? He by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus or so making peace. So how does God make peace within the church? What does he do? How does, how does he do it? He abolishes the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now what's Paul talking about here? Very simply. The thing that caused the Gentiles to genuinely hate the Jews was not just that the Jews hated them, but the Gentiles thought they were just nuts. They had all these ceremonial rules and regulations and commandments that they had made up. Remember how Jesus was so frustrated at the Pharisees for all the hand washing and you can't pull your donkey out of a ditch and you can't eat the grain on the Sabbath and like all of these stupid rules. And the Gentiles looked at the Jews and said, You guys are crazy. You guys are nuts. You're idiots. So they looked back and they said, Well, by doing these things, we are pure, not like you filthy dogs. In fact, the first century church of Jew and Gentile together was a miracle. He abolished these laws, these commandments expressed in ordinances in order that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. So what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture, that in abolishing these ceremonial laws, Jesus caused the hostility that had previously existed between these two groups to essentially evaporate. Now, think about this. I'll give you an illustration of where this happened in the first century. What were one of those ceremonial laws that Jesus abolished in his death? Well, it was circumcision. And what was causing so much conflict in the early church where people were saying, yes, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, plus circumcision, plus this ordinance, plus this commandment that we have put on the same level as Salvation by grace and faith. And it was causing huge conflict. So here's the point. Hostility is eradicated and unity grows when we refuse to let the lesser things become the main thing. Hostility is thwarted. Satan is thwarted. And unity is fostered in the church when we as a group decide that the main thing has to stay the main thing. When we decide that lesser things have to remain lesser things, my opinions, my points of view, how I would do it if it were up to me, what I think should be the next decision. Like all of those things, all of those things become secondary to the main thing, which is the gospel. And this is where Satan so often trips us up. We make the lesser things, which are often good things, the main things. It may be how we dress, if we drink alcohol, what we do or don't do on a Sunday, the version of the Bible, we or our political affiliation. But when the good things become the main thing, then we divide the church We fight over things that should not be the source of conflict amongst us and it takes wisdom to know the difference. This is why we have the scriptures. We are so good at replacing the main thing, the gospel and the purpose of the church and the glory of Christ with lesser things that divide us. So let me try to apply this gently. And I know that I don't know most of you So I want to try to be really gentle when I say this, but right now across evangelicalism in Canada, and I can see it in this church to a certain extent, there is a growing rift about how we respond to the government, how we respond to lockdowns and the decisions and the leadership of the government and how they have impacted us through their choices regarding the pandemic. On the one hand... We've got the Romans 13 people who say whatever the government says we must do because the Bible says we must do it. We have to submit to, the, submit to the king and honor him and do what he says. And so if Doug Ford says to do this, then we are going to do it. No questions asked. And then on the other side of the equation, we've got people, and I've got to admit, I'm, I'm in this camp over here. We have people who, who are more the Acts, Acts 5 group who just love what Peter said we must obey God rather than men. And so we just, we just feel these, these decisions are draconian. Uh, we don't need to follow the protocols. Government shouldn't be telling us what to do. Personally, politically, I'm a libertarian. So my, my guy never gets elected. It's very frustrating. So I'm on this side of the equation. i got to just, you know, full full disclosure, that's who I am. But you know what I'm most passionate about? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just refuse in my life to let this issue become the main thing. I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to allow this to divide me from you. And I hope that you will not allow this to divide you from me. You see, it's so easy for us to get passionate about lesser things. And what happens unintentionally, we don't mean this, but the main thing becomes less important. And as a consequence, we end up in a divided, fractured church. I just hope that doesn't happen to us. I pray that it doesn't happen in churches around Canada. I know there's a lot of strong feelings, but can I ask you about this? Can I just ask you? Can we have a stronger feeling about the purpose and the calling and the mandate of the Church of Jesus Christ in Niagara than whether or not we're allowed 30% or 60% or 100%, whether or not we have to wear masks, Whether or not we have to follow these protocols. Now, this is not a black and white issue. There is merit to what people say from Romans 13, and there is merit to what people say from Acts chapter 5 and verses that say similar things. It's not a black and white issue. has the government overstepped its authority probably when some of these when some of these issues are tested in court will they be against the charter probably but there's coming a day particularly if bill c6 is passed there is coming a day in canada where we will have to defy the government if they tell us that we can't tell people that they can be converted and transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. We will defy the government. We will preach what the gospel preaches. But until then, I make a choice to live in subjection to the elders of our church. I, I don't know them real well, but I know them enough to know that they're men of integrity, that they love God, and they're trying desperately to balance these two very polarizing issues and to keep the main thing the main thing. So let's make a commitment to live in submission to our elders. And lastly, and very importantly, embrace God's passion. Verse 16. Here's God's passion. This is what God wants for us. That we might be reconciled, that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is what God is passionate about. It's that both sides, in every debate, as long as we are not debating or speaking about absolute biblical truth, and that caveat has to be in there, unless we're not, unless we're speaking about absolute biblical, unequivocal truth, God's passion is that we would be reconciled to God in one body through the cross and that the hostility would die. God's passion, in other words, is our unity and why we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that Harvest Niagara would walk in in this generation for his glory. God's passion is that we would be forgiving, tolerant, gentle, loving, and understanding, that we would disagree but not be disagreeable. That we would have difference of opinions about secondary things, but that we would be united in the main thing, the work of the gospel in this church. So right now we meet, we preach, we're allowed to preach the Bible, it's not yet being called out as hate literature, might be. So we keep the main thing and become more and more and more passionate about what God is passionate about, and that is our unity. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, we're going to do something a little different for the next 20, 25 minutes. I want to ask you a question. And the question is this Is there anything in your heart, in your attitudes, or in your behavior that is potentially going to cause disunity in our church? So, is it your pride? Do you want your own way? You feel honestly feel that your ideas are the best ideas? Is it a rebellious or perhaps a critical spirit? Or are you a peacemaker? I should, no, are you a peacekeeper? Are, are, you, are you harboring issues, not dealing with conflict? Just holding on to it, hoping that it will go away? Not giving the grace and the love that God has given to you to someone else. Are you a hypocrite? Or has the main thing become your second thing? And the gospel and the unity of the church is now somehow being placed in second place to the work of the church. Or is your passion no longer God's passion? There's a beautiful verse in Psalm 139 that I'd like you, maybe if you have your Bibles turn there, Psalm 139, <clears throat> 139 verses 22, 23, and 24. The worship team is going to come up. Martin, come on up. And they're going to play a couple of songs. This isn't going to be a worship time. It's going to be a time of introspection, reflection. It's going to be a time of seeking God, asking God to do this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous or hurtful or divisive way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. So we're going to take about five, seven minutes, and they're going to play. If you want to sing, you can sing, but I would encourage you just to bow your head before God, read that verse a couple of times, and then simply say this, Holy Spirit, Is there some attitude, some behavior, some perspective, something that I'm doing that is fostering disunity? If there is, show it to me. And at the end of this, you may have one, two, couple of words. You might say, Well, I am too critical. Yeah, I I am a peacekeeper. I'm afraid. I don't have the courage to go to that person. Yeah, I'm bitter. Let let the Spirit of God bring that to, to the surface. And then we're going to deal with it around the communion table, because Jesus will be here with us. We're not going to deal with these issues on our own. He hasn't left us as orphans. He is with us. And no matter the word that you come up with, no matter the sin, no matter what the issue is, the attitude, the behavior, whatever it is, Jesus is bigger. The Lord is bigger and we're going to go to Him, and we're going to ask Him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, and we're going to watch Him change us. So take a moment, ask God for His grace, to open your heart to those issues that you need in these next few moments to deal with. Let me pray for you. Father, as we begin this time of introspection, as we begin this time where we respond to what Your Word teaches us, I pray that you'd be gracious to us and to our church. Lord, we know that we are your workmanship, this congregation of people formed back in 2011 by your grace, and by your design. It's created by you. We're your project. <clears throat> and Lord, you've created us for good works, works that you beforehand ordained that we would accomplish in the Niagara Peninsula in this part of history, so that your kingdom would continue to advance and your son would continue to be given the glory and the honor and the praise that he deserves. So, Lord, would you do work in our hearts right now that needs to be done? Pull out those things that need to be exposed. Show us where our hearts are not right. And would you bring us to that place where we're willing to lay them on the altar and confess them as sin? And by your Spirit's power, leave them behind this morning. We ask you to do that for your glory, Lord. We love you. We want to be a church of which you can be proud. We want to be a radiant, glorious bride over which you can rejoice. So do in my heart now what needs to be done, I pray, Lord. Do in our hearts only that which you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.